60 years on from both JFK and Star Trek, iconically referring to it as such, it is still the final frontier. But it's also changing. With the first orbital satellite launched from Scottish soil due later this year, and Elon Musk's Starship rocket aiming to have people on the moon by around 2025, and then onward to Mars in the 2030s, space exploration is no longer the domain of governments or national and international agencies. And that just makes it even more exciting. From the University of Aberdeen, I'm Laura Grant. Strap on your jetpack, because we're going into the headlines. Episode 6, Watch This Space. I'm joined today by Professor Javier Martin-Torres, theoretical physicist and personal chair at the School of Geosciences, and Dr. Maria Manoli, lecturer in space law at the university's School of Law. Welcome both. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Javier, Scotland and the University of Aberdeen aren't necessarily the first places that people think of when it comes to space exploration, but we've got quite a bit going on here, haven't we? Yeah, actually, Scotland is a beautiful place to be in, in first instance. And the UK in general has been always a, a very nice place for space exploration. And uh, Aberdeen is a very interesting place in particular because uh, I don't know if everybody knows this, but there is a, a site in, in, in Aberdeen where there is an, a mineral. Well, this is the place where this mineral called Macaulite is found. It's the only place on Earth when this is a mineral is, the only other place where this mineral is, is on Mars. So, of course, this is not the the, the point that attracted me to Aberdeen. Uh, I have always lo- loved the environment of the city and, and the university itself. And uh, we started this group of planetary sciences uh, from scratch. So this is a, a new group that uh, in these uh, more than 500 years of university, is the first time that there is a department of planetary sciences. But there has been a few researchers that have been contributing to research uh, in planetary sciences, like uh, John Pornell, which is uh, still active at the university. And some of the people that have been contributing in the past to a very nice history of, of planetary science and some papers about uh, uh, planetary science, space, about noctilus and clouds. I mean, noctilus and clouds is, uh, is a very nice phenomenon that you can see in the in, in the summertime in Aberdeen. It's one of the best places in the world to see them. And those are clouds that are formed at uh, more than 80 kilometers in the, in the atmosphere and that are, are bright at nighttime. It is, Aberdeen is a unique place to observe them. And we had a, a, an astronomer actually and in the 70s, 80s, that was working in the uh, Cromwell Observatory at the university. He had a, an observatory of noctilus and clouds. And those clouds are very important from an atmospheric point of view. So there is a kind of tradition in studying space weather, studying planetary atmosphere. But this is the first time that we have a Department of Planetary Sciences in Aberdeen. I love that we have the, the mineral that's found at the base of Menahe. I think they should put that on the welcome signs to Aberdeenshire, twinned with Mars. That would be amazing. <laughs> You've 
You've described the time that we're living in as being the golden age of space exploration. What do you mean by that? Yes, actually, we are in a time where we see that there is a a huge increase uh, economically in investments all around the world about space exploration. I mean, there are many companies in the world now. Some of them are very famous, like SpaceX. But uh, there are hundreds of companies that start every year in all over the world. And we have a, very recently, uh, I heard a prediction from one of these uh, broker companies in, in the United States where they say that uh, in 10 years, the investment for, of, uh, of space exploration in general will be of around $3 trillion, which is which is a, a massive amount of money. And uh, um, very importantly, most of this economy will be moved by companies, not as traditionally has been by uh, space agencies. Actually, right now we have that uh, space agencies like NASA rely on on rockets launched by, by or built by SpaceX, for example, by a company. So we have that there is a transition that uh, goes from from the traditional uh, space that was uh, governed by governments and space agencies to a, a new era of of space where that will be governed by by space companies. Also, I mean, you just have a look in the last five, 10 years, space exploration, space launches that, that we had, hundreds of them, satellites. I mean, we have a constant, several constellations of satellites around the world that is used for telecommunication. So we, we, we are living in an era where there is a lot of launches, a lot of space developments that had never been before. Uh, it's very f- popular and famous uh, that that period of the Cold War when the United States and Russia were fighting to be the kings of uh, of space and and to be the first to go to the moon, the first to to launch an instrument to space. And that period of time was uh, was kind of a uh, bimodal. I mean, there were only two participants in in that uh, career. And but now we see that uh, it's all over the world that we have. Uh, countries able to launch instruments to space. So, for example, we have uh, not only the United States and Russia, we have Japan, we have uh, Sweden, we have Israel, we have India, we have China. All these countries, they have the capability to launch instruments to space. So the, I see that, that now we are really living the golden age of space exploration. Space is cool. There's no two ways about it. It easily captures the imagination, but how easy is it to transfer into a career the rise in private companies involved in space exploration, I imagine, must be making that easier, is it? Oh, yeah, it is. Absolutely. Actually, uh, we are we have currently a master in planetary sciences at the University of Aberdeen. And uh, the way that we advertise it is that uh, we, we, we try to communicate to students or, or to people in general that uh, uh, there is a space for everybody in space. Because in the future, if we have colonies on the moon or Mars or we have a, a space gateway around the moon, we will need people working in many different fields. We need medical doctors, we need nurses, we need uh, uh, lawyers, we will need biologists, uh, chemists, physicists, engineers, of course. So we need people from all branches in science that we have a contribution in space. So we cannot say that in the past we were always thinking about space as something just for physicists, engineers, mathematicians, and things like that. But now that we, we are going to have the opportunity very soon to have more astronauts, just not, not only going to the International Space Station, but also landing on the moon, trying to 
go to Mars and land on Mars. So we are going to have a lot of opportunities for people from all the different fields to participate in space, not only working for space agencies, as I said before, but also for companies, which are going to be, uh, I, I think, the biggest stars in the future. We've spoken about Mars. You and your team are involved in the Mars Exploration Research Programme. What can you tell me about that? Well, this is an ambitious programme, I have to say. And, and I say ambitious not only because it's, it's relying on in international collaboration, which is always difficult. For example, we, we've developed an instrument that is in the, in the ExoMars platform that is not going to be launched soon because uh, due to the war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, the mission has been stopped for the moment. So it's ambitious because we have to rely on international collaborations. It's also a very expensive missions where there are missions that have to be planned many years ahead. So from the time that you have an idea of a space instrument to the time that it's really operating, it could be 10, 15 years. So every instrument in every mission has this, this long-term thoughts, this long-term process, this long-term funding too. We need to keep people working for many years in one project. Some of, of the people, they leave because they find a, a, another opportunity, they change cities, they, they change country. So it's very hard to keep uh, running uh, one project for 15 years in general. Not, and so space is, is, uh, is challenging in that sense. And this Mars program is now divided in, in three different stages. The first stage is to have instruments in, in what is called low Earth orbit. So we, have, we already have that. A lot of satellites are spinning around the Earth, observing the Earth. And, and that one is already accomplished. The second stage is to have what is called a gateway. It's, it's another international space station, but this one is not going to be around the Earth, but it's going to be around the moon. So there will be a, an international space station, uh, in this case called uh, Gateway. It will, be, it will have contributions from the many different countries and space agencies, and uh, it will put the basis for transportation of material from the Earth to the moon. And at the end, we want to have a base of astronauts in the moon, either temporarily or permanent. This is to be decided yet, but it's going to be a base likely in the south pole of the moon. And then the third step is going from there to Mars. So it's a, it's a very long-term and ambitious project involving many different stages. And uh, that uh, exploration of Mars it has a, within itself has different stages too. One of them, and this is within what we call the Mars uh, sample return program. The Mars sample return program has the idea of bringing samples from Mars to Earth. And uh, the first stage of that program has already started. It's the Perseverance rover, which is now in the, on the surface of Mars. That was This is a NASA rover that is now making holes on the surface of Mars and, and taking samples. So it's storing the samples and leaving some of them of the, on the surface. Then there will be another spacecraft in the near future that will go to Mars and will grab all the samples. And then after that, there will be a rocket from Mars that will send the samples to space and another spacecraft that will be orbiting Mars will take them back to Earth. So it looks like a science fiction <laughs> movie. And it's, it's, it's something that will happen in the next 10, 12 years. And this is the first step to put a man or a woman on Mars. And, and it will be 
the first step because we want to know if, uh, for example, there is life on Mars. We want to know if those samples are able to to hold life on, on Mars. That would be an, a very important discovery. And also, we, one of the reasons that we want to want to take samples from Mars and that we are not launching astronauts to Mars yet is because we want to know very well the environment of Mars. If you want to send your kids to a place, you want to know how the environment is. You know if there is danger there. You want to know everything very well. So we want to send astronauts to Mars, and we want to know that they are not going to suffer anything that as something that we are not predicting. We want to know exactly what the conditions are. We want to know how is the how are the radiation levels, what kind of dangers they can find in the on the surface. We know that the surface of Mars, for example, is, is, is full of perchlorates, and those perchlorates, when they become humid, are bleach. So the astronaut will be stepping on bleach. <laughs> so they will be exposed to a, a high high levels of, of radiation to extreme temperatures. So we need to characterize that very well before we send astronauts to Mars. And is there always going to be a need to send people? Is there is there not a point where technology overtakes man's ability to do something or is there always going to be a role for for humans yeah i think that uh, the, i mean as humans we want to explore <laughs> we we want always to reach limits that we haven't seen before i mean we've been to the antarctica which is not probably the most <laughs> nice place in the world and uh, we we've seen people like Scott suffering to, to reach those places and, and dying in the process. And, and still we try. Even you've seen the, this uh, Mars One mission that they were asking for people to go to, the, to Mars in one way trip. And still they have a, a lot of people that, that wanted to do it. And so I think it's, it's human nature to want to explore. I think that the future of, of Mars exploration and in general, solar system exploration, because it's not only Mars. We, after Mars, we have, for example, very nice moons uh, in, in Jupiter and, and Saturn that they have surfaces like Mars. Titan, for example, has lakes. And uh, there are other places to explore. And I think that the, the long-term future of, of, uh, of planetary exploration will be developed by the artificial intelligence. I think that artificial intelligence is growing exponentially with, uh, with time. We see that uh, more and more algorithms and very intelligent algorithms are, are being developed in the last years. I think that at some point we will have uh, robots that will be able to use artificial intelligence and take their own clever decisions on Mars without the need to expose the life of astronauts. Also, it will be much less expensive to go to, to another planet. We don't have to feed uh, astronauts. We don't have to have water for them. We don't have to have uh, uh, food. We don't even need to have this robot back to Earth. We can uh, reduce a lot of expenses of, of missions. I'm really interested to know a little bit more specifically about the instruments that you're involved in developing for the Mars mission. Can you give me the elevator pitch on, on what they are? Yes, we developed in the past an instrument called REMS that is now in the Curiosity rover. It's been operating on Mars for more than 10, 12 years now. And that instrument was a meteorological station. So every time that you see the weather on Mars, from it, this is from our instrument, actually. So we have developed a, a, a more advanced form of that instrument. This time is an, it's again, it's a, it's a meteorological station, but at the same time, it's an in-situ resource utilization instrument. The instrument is called Habit. 
that stands for habitability, brines, irradiation, and temperature. And this instrument will produce liquid water on Mars. So it's a prototype of how to produce liquid water on Mars. That, that have an interest, that this is kind of an interest that will pave the way for future human exploration of Mars, because uh, with this small instrument that now is a prototype, you, you can develop a larger scale of that one, and for example, uh, produce water that can be used for a greenhouse or to feed uh, astronauts. Now, Maria, I feel we've spoken about a couple of areas where the law might come into play, and I'm sure you have some thoughts on that to share. But for context, the university was one of the first in the world to incorporate space law into its research curricula back in the 1980s. You joined the fold last year. Why was the University of Aberdeen the place to come for you? Yeah, um, absolutely. Aberdeen has a history in space law with uh, Professor Lyle, one of the most well-known professors in the field, uh, having taught space law in uh, in the law in the law school for many years. So that's what drew me to the University of Aberdeen. Its tradition and history in the field, uh, its scholarship in the field, and also the fact that I was not going to be the first one introducing space law in the curriculum of law school, but I was going to be the one reviving it. So the University of Aberdeen is very, very well known uh, to everybody who conducts uh, research in space law together with uh, other universities with tradition in the field, such as McGill, Leiden and the University of Cologne. So it's one of the very, very few universities worldwide that uh, were able to offer me an environment with tradition in in my field of expertise. And uh, coming to the University of Aberdeen, I've met colleagues like Javier with vision and involvement in so critical projects for the future of humanity. And that's something that really confirmed my decision to come. I really found what I was looking for. It's really great to hear that. Now, I have to ask, if this is the golden age for space exploration, is it also the golden age for space law? Or has the law not kept pace with how technology in the industry itself has evolved? International space law was produced during the 50s and the 60s. So it's not a new field of law like a lot of people think. It's quite old one. It was produced during the tensions of the Cold War. And the two main countries that actively participated in the in the negotiations for the five UN space treaties were the two superpowers of that era, the, the United States and the former Soviet Union. Uh, so international space law emerged through the Cold War period and the purpose of international space law was to secure peaceful uses of outer space. Now, of course, it emerged out of necessity to provide a field for cooperation in space exploration, and that was its main purpose. It did not foresee a modern space activity such as space tourism, for example, or space mining uh, or mega constellations and things like that. Now, modern space law and the production of modern space law is called upon to fill these gaps. But at the same time, because of the very general nature of international space law, as it was produced during the 50s and 60s, it is able to cover a broad area of activities because space law itself is very broad. It's mostly a field of principles rather than detailed rules. And it has the capacity to govern and cover and address modern challenges as well. But the truth is that the last internationally binding 
instrument that was produced was the Moon Agreement, which was signed in 1979 and entered into force in 1984. Since then, there is no internationally binding instrument produced to regulate the use of outer space. Uh, there's many decades since then, and many more activities have been introduced. So it is true that it is the golden age for space exploration, and perhaps it is a golden age for further uh, regulation of space activities. But that being said, the existing international legal framework is sufficient to regulate the broad scope of even modern space activities. Just a, a, a tiny a tiny comment on the uh, Mars sample return mission. It's something actually that space law addresses clearly. And uh, there is an exception to the non-appropriation principle when it comes to return missions. Uh, so governments, when it comes to scientific missions, they can uh, extract and own space resources for further exploration. And we see here how space law really tries to enable scientific exploration of our space and how a collaboration between law and science has always been at the forefront of, uh, of, of space law, international space law. What are some of the big ticket items? Responsibility, I imagine, for things is a bit of a hot topic. Environmental concerns, debris, territory, patents. Can you tell us what the big questions are and how it works in terms of the legal landscape? Absolutely. There are several issues that have been coming up all these years. Uh, the issue of responsibility is a quite a complex and interesting one. In the field of space law, governments are responsible for the activities of their private entities, their non-governmental entities. So when a private company launches a satellite or engages in any other space activity, their government is in fact uh, responsible for this activity simply because they have the obligation to authorize and continuously supervise their activity. So the private company will not be responsible internationally for their own activities, but their government uh, that had to authorize and supervise these activities will always remain internationally responsible for them. And part of, of this process is also the licensing. So when a government licenses a space activity, they have to make sure that this activity will be in accordance with international law and will respect international legal rules. So that's one issue that um, that comes into question nowadays, simply because the involvement of private actors is uh, and the influence of new space actors is exponentially growing. Other, other areas that need further regulation or simply further thinking, like you mentioned, is the environmental protection of outer space. The production of space debris, which uh, is now becoming an issue more than ever before, the, the regulation of space debris does not exist. It consists of simply soft law instruments, meaning non-binding instruments, guidelines, uh, manuals that are not binding upon states. So it's up to the, the goodwill of states to pull them or not, and to the internal policies of states and private companies. And of course, one of the major issues is space mining one of the most uh, exciting but at the same time challenging issues. Space mining uh, involves of course the extraction of minerals from outer space, from the celestial bodies of outer space, and that inherently involves the question of whether this is legal or not, simply because space law prohibits the appropriation of parts of outer space. Uh, so how could we mine something? How could we extract something and perhaps even sell it at the second states for the private company? The private companies perhaps would want to sell it at the second states. How can we do that if we can have no property rights over parts of outer space? So, and here we see the shift from the global to the local and from the international to the national. 
simply because several states such as the US and Luxembourg that are very active in space regulation, uh, the regulation of space activities, they are willing to provide a facilitative environment for private companies, an environment that would attract them and that would that would make them feel secure that profit can be a result of such activities. So they produce domestic laws that allow for the appropriation of parts of outer space, and they've been very successful. The U.S. was the first one in 2016 to introduce such a law. Uh, Luxembourg followed, and uh, Luxembourg introduced their law in 2017. And within approximately a year, they really attracted an amazing number of private companies into that jurisdiction. But at the same time, international law remains binding. So there is a conflict there between the national and the international. And we see that whenever the international it doesn't cover modern activities, we see a shift and a tendency to regulate from within domestic fora. I have a question for Maria. I, I'm going in two weeks to Luxembourg. And because there, there is a space week organized by the European Space Agency. And uh, they have this master in space law. And uh, they have passed this law. Is it's a real thing or is something more like an invention or a way to attract companies to Luxembourg to invest money there? I'll just say that Luxembourg has been very success, successful in mm. achieving what they wanted to, to attract many, many private space companies. So I see Luxembourg as the hub of space exploration, European space exploration or potential hub. Mm-hmm. But I also see Scotland being able to take such a role in the future. Uh, but I've been reading about the the strategic geographical position of Scotland and how easy it is to perform launches for Scotland and how yes. cost efficient it might be. So I, I'd say, yeah, Luxembourg has taken the lead, but maybe Scotland should follow. Yeah, we should try it. <laughs> we could get some university funding, I'm sure, for something. <laughs> yes. Javier, how often do you bump into the law in terms of the activities that you're doing? Is that something you think about or it's just something you have to deal with? Yeah, yeah, it's actually something that is very important. As I said before, international collaboration is very important. So international law applies. And uh, so I have a clear example there of two days <laughs> is that uh, our habit instrument that was uh, going to be part of the ExoMars mission is uh, in the ExoMars platform right now in, in Italy, in Torino. And uh, because the platform is, is, uh, is from Russia, it was developed in, in Russia because this project of ExoMars was an international collaboration between the European Space Agency and, and Russia. Now we have that uh, we cannot access the platform. We cannot touch the platform because it's Russian, but the platform is located in a European place in, in Italy. So the problem now is that uh, Russian personnel from the ICI, the International Russian Space Agency, cannot access the uh, Thales Alinea because they don't have permissions uh, due to the to the war. And, uh, and we are just waiting to see when they get the permission to access and, and they can send uh, our instrument back. Because something important that I haven't mentioned is that uh, we have received a grant from the UK Space Agency. Uh, it's, a, it's so something called bilateral grants to collaborate with uh, another uh, space agency. And in this case, we, we the idea is that we are going to have Habit being part of, uh, of the first Japanese mission to Mars. So international law is important. And, uh, and in general, the, all these big projects, uh, they, they are the, 
uh, a joint effort between many countries. So it's, it's very important, of course. Yeah. It sounds like you can also spend years planning and testing and spending an awful lot of money and then something unexpected happens and it's over or you have to you have to wait for for years for another window to, to come around is that frustrating to be part of or does the scale of what you're mm-hmm. doing outweigh the downside yeah it's part of the business i would say i think it's accepted of course it's very it's tragic when it happens. I mean, I, I, when I was working in, at the Jet Proposal Laboratory in California, we, I was part of a mission uh, to to analyze the data from from CO2 in the atmosphere. It was a project that, that had been uh, running for 15 years, and uh, I was at the at the launch site, and uh, the instrument uh, fell down to Pacific Ocean in three minutes after launch. So all that work from a lot of people working for 15 years was lost in, in one second. So yeah, it was tragic. And, and uh, But it, I think it's part of the business. I mean, we, we've seen other examples. I mean, actually, in, in the history of Mars exploration, I think that around 50% of the missions has failed. Really? So it's a lot. Yeah, it, it was mainly at the beginning of the of the of the in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. Now, in the last years, we've been more successful, but still, there is a risk that the mission is not successful. There is always that risk. By the way, before I forget, I've been looking at the numbers like when you ask me about the golden age of of, of, of exploration, and there have been. 250 robotic spacecrafts launched and and, uh, and humans uh, on the moon. We have 24 human humans on the moon, and and in the last 20 years we have more than six 600 people that has been in space as astronauts, and and the number of launches every year of, of satellites that are launched to space every year is is above 100. So we are and this is increasing with time. And so we are really living in in that age with uh, with with the space is 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 becoming more and more important, and our lives rely on space. I mean, in one of the courses that we teach in in the master is is about the space weather. We 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 were discussing the other day how catastrophic it would be for all us if one day uh, the sun sent a, a lot of energy. To, to the earth and, and kills, for example, the, all the satellites of communication, who will be lost, you know? I mean- That would be it, wouldn't it? No telly, no-, no Yeah, yeah. No even, even ATMs, even, I mean, no phones or no internet, we will be lost and we will be quite chaotic. So we rely a lot of in, in all these uh, uh, spacecrafts that are around, uh, in orbit around the earth. One last question for me. Would you like to go to space? Are you asking to me? Yeah, both of you. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. I, I just said at the beginning, I'm a theoretical physicist. <laughs> Feet firmly planted on the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and definitely I will not go to, to Mars. Uh, the more I study Mars, the more I see how dangerous it is. <laughs> Apart from the no oxygen thing, it's a, it's a fairly hostile environment all around. Exactly. Yes, exactly. But I appreciate that others do it. That's great. <laughs> what about you, Maria? Any interest? Well, in space law, the biggest part of space law scholarship characterizes outer space as an ultra hazardous environment. So I'd say no. I'll, <laughs> I believe it. I'll say no. I think we're all firmly in agreement on that one. <laughs> and on that happy note, we're going to have to bring this conversation to a close. Thank you so much, guys, for taking part 
it's been brilliant. I say this every time I do one of these podcasts, but this has been so interesting. So thank you so much for giving me the time. Oh, thank you very much. And thanks to you for listening. I'll be back soon with another dip into the headlines from the University of Aberdeen. But if you just can't wait, you know what to do. Visit abdn.ac.uk slash news to catch up on all the latest announcements. This podcast was brought to you by the University of Aberdeen.